0: Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Thanks very much, Father John Mark, and that Father Torrell is a man I was privileged to live with for three years. And, um, and he, he's a yeah, fascinating character. He used to get up at five o'clock in the morning. I mean, he was in his late eighties. He got up at five o'clock in the morning, studying and studying the scriptures and studying St. Thomas Aquinas. And he got very sick at one point, he was in hospital and I was asked to go and bring him communion and he was there in his bed and this great, I mean, this really, really significant scholar. Um, he, he was lying there and he got out of bed when he asked, he said, have you got the Lord? And I said, I do. He got out of bed down on his knees. And he received the Lord like he was, a, you know, receiving his first holy communion. It was the most extraordinary thing. Um, so he's a, he's a very, very special guy. And I've given on your handout um, a, a reference to, to, to one of his works, which is kind of the uh, most substantial work on that list, I'd say. So I changed the title of this talk just a, a minute ago after hearing some people in the lodge saying, Thomas who? So I say that's, the, that's an even better title for the talk, Thomas who? So imagine this scene. At the age of 35, a Dominican friar called Thomas sitting down in his study in Paris to write in his own famously bad handwriting, we'll see some samples of it later, the first few chapters of a a new book of Christian theology that would aim to take into account the objections to Christianity, especially those of uh, Muslims. He's beginning this new work, and in the second paragraph, he gives an insight into his own motivation, his own personal sense of vocation as a theologian. And normally he is incredibly impersonal in his writing. Uh, We should face that straightforwardly. Um, So it's a very rare insight indeed that he gives. And this is what he says. It's on your handout, I think, the first text. And so in the name of the divine mercy, I have the confidence to embark upon the work of a wise man, even though this may surpass my powers. And I have set myself the task of making known, as far as my limited powers will allow, the truth that the Catholic faith professes, and of setting aside the errors that are opposed to it. So two uh, two prongs there, to to, to make known the faith, and to set aside the errors opposed to it. To use the words, then he says, of Hilary, that's St. Hilary of Poitiers, I am aware that I owe this to God as the chief duty of my life, that my every word and sense may speak of him. Chief duty of my life, that my every word and sense may speak of him. In this talk, I'm going to try to give you a sense of the whole life, of Thomas Aquinas, and of his dedication to speaking of God, to speaking truly of him and wisely of him. Now that's an impossible task to speak even remotely adequately about the life and work of St. Thomas in an hour or so, so I'll just be scratching the surface, but I've given you, as I said, a few further reading ideas that we can dig into in the Q&A, and there are tons of podcasts on the Thomistic Institute SoundCloud account, I'm sure you all know it, and there's Aquinas 101 and I Aquinas, a great resource on YouTube that a friend of mine in Freeburg set up um, really, really excellent. All of that will be really helpful to you in getting to know the thought of St. Thomas better. And I'm sure you all know better than to think of the Middle Ages as the Dark Ages. But I imagine a lot of your peers do think in those terms. They think of Europe before the Reformation, before the Renaissance, before the scientific revolution, as an age of authority, an age with, with little curiosity, an age with little creativity even. Now, you just have to stand in front of a Gothic cathedral anywhere to realise how unfair and untrue that stereotype is. And the more you dig into the 13th century especially, the more you see it as an age of novelty. The Gothic cathedrals themselves are new. There's a whole new style of preaching going around called the Sermo Modernis, the modern sermon they call it, distinct from the Sermon of the Ancients, that style of preaching. And the universities are new as well. So in the late 12th and early 13th centuries, you have students and teachers in two places, Paris and Bologna, and in in else, else other places as well, in, on a smaller scale, clubbing together in associations aimed at protecting their respective rights. So in Paris, it's the teachers who club together to protect their rights as teachers. In Bologna, it's a very different model of universities: it's the students who form an association, and these associations were called universitates, and usually with papal support, this institutional setup provided the necessary framework for stable teaching and research. And these stable environments, they began quickly to attract great numbers of students from across the Christian world, and they became very prestigious. They were places where old ideas and old subjects were taught, but they were quickly flooded with new ideas and new texts, or better, rediscovered ideas and texts. And here we're referring to works of philosophy, by Aristotle especially, that had been forgotten in the Latin West, but which had been actively and continuously studied in the lively philosophical tradition in the Arabic-speaking world among Muslims and Christians. With the Christian conquest of parts of Spain and elsewhere, you have these long-forgotten works of Aristotle being rediscovered and translated from Arabic into Latin. And at the same time, but a little bit later, you have people in Western Europe who begin learning Greek again, and begin translating Aristotle directly from Greek into Latin. Thomas Aquinas is actually at the cutting edge of this new phase of translation of Aristotle. He's getting them hot off the presses, if you like. So the new world of universities suddenly encounters a whole load of new ideas in Aristotle and in Jewish and Muslim philosophers, people like Averroes, Avicenna, and Moses Maimonides. So you have new ideas in metaphysics, for example, the study of being, the science of being, you have new ideas about the soul and its relationship to the body. You have new ideas about creation. You have new ideas about ethics with a new appreciation of virtue as a moral category. You have new ideas as well about the, the natural world, about physics, about zoology, and so on. But even more important, I think, than just the new ideas is Aristotle's method. The method he applies in all the sciences, from botany to metaphysics. He is rigorous and systematic, and he seeks to show how every element of the particular science fits with all the other parts, how the more fundamental ideas give rise to other ideas, and so on. So this model of how to think, how to think responsibly and clearly, is undoubtedly Aristotle's most important contribution to the new world of universities. So all of this is hugely impactful and causes plenty of controversy as well. But there is another impactful and controversial phenomenon as well. The new orders of friars, especially Franciscans and Dominicans. So at this stage in the early 13th century, we are seen as radical and revolutionary and totally different, almost totally different from what had gone before. So we are not monks. Friars don't live in the countryside generally. They didn't have big farms like monasteries did. They lived in towns and cities. They lived by begging. And their focus was on sharing the gospel with all kinds of people. That's what they were founded to do. They were popular preachers. But study was important to them as well. And this is how they link in with universities. Each Dominican priory was meant to have a lector, for example. So in St. Saviour's in Dublin, that's actually, that's actually my job. I'm the conventual lector. And that goes all the way back. If any of you are into Assassin's Creed, I'm sure some of you are. The Knights Templar our characters in Assassin's Creed. And it was a previous conventual lector of my community, my predecessor in St. Saviour's, who shut down the Knights Templar in Ireland. He was one of the judges along with the Franciscan conventual lector. So that model that every Dominican community, whether or not they were connected with the university, would be a place of study, a place where every day the friars would gather for lectures on the Bible and on theological and pastoral questions. So Dominican priories were places of prayer, but also communities of study. And the idea here was that the preaching of the friars would be kept lively and interesting if they were continuously studying. So one early Dominican put it very well, first the bow is bent in study, then the arrow is released in preaching. So the relationship then between the friars and the universities. The Franciscans will eventually, reluctantly get involved in university life after some internal controversy on that question. But for Dominicans... It's part of the original plan. So, Dominic himself sent friars to Paris and Bologna, the two major university towns. He was active in student ministry himself. In Bologna, he used to visit student residences to spend time chatting with the students. So, he would, if he could see this meeting today, and I'm sure he can in some sense, be absolutely delighted to see Dominican friars linking in with university students. And in Paris, the friars weren't initially allowed to preach at all when they arrived there, they weren't allowed to preach publicly. So what did they do? They invited students from the university to the Priory for prayer and conversation. And his successor as master of the order, Jordan of Saxony, he used to preach Lenten missions. One year in Paris, the next year in Bologna. So he's going to the, the university centers. And many men from the early days of university, not just theologians, but lawyers and medics and masters of arts and so on, joined the order at that time. The Dominicans from the beginning were naturally at home in this new world of universities. They were not always welcome in the new world of universities, not by a long shot. And the diocesan clergy often opposed their presence. But eventually they came to occupy chairs of theology. So a master would have the chair of theology at the University of Paris. Dominicans had two chairs at the University of Paris. Franciscans had one chair, which sounds perfectly fair to me. As I said, the presence of the friars there was not without controversy. So when Thomas Aquinas preaches his inaugural lecture, which I'm going to give you at the end, there were snipers protecting him. So the royal archers sent by Louis IX, they were guarding the Priory in case of a riot. So that gives you a sense of the controversy at the time around mendicant friars being involved in universities. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The major point is that there was a lot that was happening in the 13th century, in the early 13th century, that was new in the life of the church and in the intellectual life of Europe. So now let's turn to Thomas. He was born in 1225, probably, and died in 1274. So St. Dominic himself had died just four years before his own birth. So there was that whole new movement there when Thomas was born. And and that was just a few hundred miles north of where he was born that that Dominic had died. Um, And just about 50 miles south of where Dominic was born in Naples, a new york university was founded a year before his own birth by the emperor frederick ii so you can see he's right at the epicenter of a lot of this change this is there's a kind of a stalinist memorial to to thomas aquinas in Roccasecca, currently being visited recently by by some of our some of our brethren um so thomas's family they were not poor they were not socially insignificant they were kind of minor nobility and his older brothers were involved in military campaigning and one of them actually Ronaldo, he had fought for, not that Ronaldo, um, no, no, we won't say that. Ronaldo had fought for the emperor against the Pope, but then changed sides to, to fight for the Pope. And the emperor had him executed. And interestingly, after Thomas's death, decades later, one of his sisters, Maratha, had a dream. And she asks him in the dream how Ronaldo is doing in the afterlife. And Thomas says he's grand, he's in heaven. So it was clearly, this is decades later, clearly a trauma for the family and a cause for for anxiety. Thomas was the youngest son in his family. His parents, Theodora and Landolfo, had four boys and five girls. And as the youngest son, he was destined for the church. That was just the the custom at the time among these noble families. Not, we should stress, he was not destined for the smelly friars who had only been around a wet week, but for the ancient abbey of Monte Cassino, founded by St. Benedict himself. He was given to the monastery to be a monk at the age of about five. That's pretty incredible to us now, but it was fairly standard practice at the time to be, to be given as an oblate, they were called. They weren't full monks and they weren't necessarily obliged to take vows in the end, but they were given there and they had their upbringing and in the monastery, they had a regular liturgical life and they would have had an excellent education in a, in a peaceful and mature environment. So I, I, it just occurred to me recently that many of the greatest geniuses of the Middle Ages were brought up as oblates in monastic communities. So just a few, few examples here. Bede, the, the great historian, the kind of father of English history. Notker, the Stammerer, who was a pioneering musician. His music teacher was an Irishman, by the way, Mwingal. Uh, Gerbert of Aurillac, who was an early adopter of Islamic science and mathematics and later Pope. Herman the Lame, fascinating figure who was very seriously physically disabled. That's one of the reasons it's thought that his family gave him to the monastery to look after him. But the monks there discovered that he had a phenomenal mind and he became a great teacher of mathematics, astronomy and music. You can see there Salve Regina. He's one of the people who's credited with composing the hymn that we sang at the end of Mass, the Salve Regina. Quite a few people are credited with that, so we can't be sure. And then finally, Hildegard of, of Bingen over here. Was a visionary and musical composer, one of the most fascinating women of the Middle Ages. They were all brought up as oblates in monasteries. And Thomas Aquinas. And we're actually told the a lovely detail by his biographers that when he went to the monastery, he didn't go alone. He was accompanied by his nurse, by his nanny. So for the first years, there would at least have been plenty of hugs for him and plenty of affection. It wasn't a totally austere life that he had. But there he was in Monte Cassino from the age of about five to the age about 15 or so, singing in the office, doing manual labor and learning the basics of the liberal arts, grammar and rhetoric and logic and so on. And he's being soaked in the scriptures as well, but more in the Abbey Church than in the classroom, I think. Every day he's singing the Psalms. He would have learned to read and write with the Psalms. And he's listening to readings from throughout scripture in the church. So young Thomas was shaped by the liturgy, by worship, as much as he was shaped by his teachers. it's really important to remember that. Now here's a fascinating manuscript that I don't think has ever been linked to St. Thomas, but I, I, it occurred to me when I was when I was studying it recently it's um, well I'll let you figure out what it is. the, the writing and the music, there are these early musical note, notes called noons. the writing and the music is upside down relative to the images. Yeah, that's very, very strange. upside down relative to the images. So the images, if you're reading this, the images appear upside down to you as you read it. Um, what, might, what might it be? What might it have been used for? Any ideas at all? And there's a clue. It's from Monte Cassino. And it would have been in Monte Cassino when Thomas was there. This is my point, that Thomas, I think, would have seen this and would have seen it used in this way. What do you think is going on here? Any ideas? There's a candle being incensed. So there's a candle being incensed. When do we have a major focus on a candle in the liturgical year? The Easter Vigil. And what song is associated with that moment when the Easter, when the candle is is lit and being incensed? The Exalted. So what's happening here is in the scroll, we actually see the scroll itself. It's kind of very meta in that sense. We see it being used. And it's being read by the deacon who's proclaiming it. But then there's a group of young fellows. There's a group of kids at the bottom of the pulpit who see it as it unfurls, they're not reading the words, they're seeing the pictures. And so the pictures are the right way up for them. And um, So I think Thomas, when the Exalted was being sung, he would have, you know, all the, the, the darkened church, totally silent except for the voice of the deacon, clouds of incense lit by the paschal candle. These are the images that he would have seen as he heard the resurrection of Christ proclaimed, which is pretty cool, I think. And again, like I said, that connection isn't isn't often made, but his imagination is being shaped by all of these experiences um, in his early monastic life. I should say that the Benedictines are still bitter about the fact that he he didn't end up with a, a Benedictine. The one he the one that got away that's what they call him. So throughout his childhood, he is encountering God in the liturgy. He is worshiping God, and he's doing so at the heart of a community community dedicated to worship. But he's also asking lots of questions about God. So he's a five-year-old and he is full of questions. So on, I think I've given it to you on the handout from one of his biographers. Having been entrusted to a certain master, Thomas began like another Josiah. So this little five-year-old Thomas is being compared to an Old Testament king just because Josiah in Second Chronicles, he says, ask of the Lord, inquire of the Lord. So that's the reason there. Thomas began like another Josiah to inquire of the Lord his God, anxiously and often asking his teacher, what is God? God, quid est deus. So there's a five-year-old, he's fascinated by the nature of God. Now, I don't think it's unusual that a five-year-old is repeating anxiously and frequently fundamental questions. That's what five-year-olds do. What's unusual about Thomas is that he never stopped doing just that. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. Everything changes for Thomas, the monastic oblate in 1239. Military tensions between Pope and Emperor, they meant that the monastery was no longer a safe place. And the abbot writes to Thomas's parents and recommend that he be sent to the University of Naples, this new university uh, set up by the emperor. This didn't necessarily mean leaving the monastic life, though, and he almost certainly stayed in Naples in the little hostel of the monks of Monte Cassino. So they had a little, kind of, um, a little community that belonged to them there at the university. Now, this university was one of the places that was most active in engaging with new texts coming from the Islamic world. So there's a man there from the north of England or Scotland called Michael Scott, like in the office, or Michael, Michael Scotus. And he, he knows Arabic and he knows Hebrew and he knows all these different texts. And he's actively translating all of these works at the University of Naples. The Pope named him Archbishop of Cashel in Ireland. And he said he, he couldn't go because he didn't know any Irish. And um, so his, he had some limits in his linguistic abilities, but Arabic and Hebrew, he could manage and he was actively translating uh, all of these works. Interestingly, and I think very importantly for us, one of his teachers at this time, one of Thomas's teachers was an Irishman, Master Peter of Ireland, about whom we know very little, but he taught Thomas the natural sciences. And P- Peter features also in a, in a little Christian Jewish study group a little later, around 1250. And he was very interested in the thought of uh, the Jewish thinker Maimonides, which is also relevant for Thomas, as we'll see. But during his five years at Naples, from the ages of about 15 to 20, This also happened. Thomas got to know the Dominican friars. He heard their preaching. He saw how they lived. He learnt that study was a vital part of their way of honoring God and serving the church. And he had found his path. He had found his calling. And so he took the Dominican habit in 1244 at about the age of 20. His family is furious. Who were these ragtag nerdy beggars? What about the hopes of the family that Thomas would be abbot of Monte Cassino and a rich landowner? His mother Theodora she went straight to Naples when she heard the news to stop him, but he had already gone to Bologna. So in fact, this had, already, this had happened earlier in Naples that the son of a nobleman's family had entered the Dominicans, and I think the, the the friary ended up being burned down by that family. So or being at least there was a massive riot and there was major uh, destruction. So the Dominicans were they were cute, you know they said. We got to get Thomas out of here. So he went straight to Bologna, but she was cute as well, Theodora. She got word to her sons, her military sons, and said, "You've got to, you've got to intercept young Thomas." And so he ends up being kidnapped by his own brothers, and he is imprisoned in his family home from the age of twenty to twenty-one. So totally normal situation. Um, so you can see him here. Here is Thomas being dragged away from his black and white herd by his by his brothers. They try everything to dissuade him from remaining as a friar. Famously, they send in a prostitute into his room to tempt him, but he resists temptation and keeps her back with a red-hot poker. And that's one of the reasons that title, Angelic, is associated with him. Again, totally normal situation. One thing I love about this time of imprisonment, though, is what Thomas does with his time. Uh, So we all had an experience of lockdown. Thomas, in his time of lockdown, he studies. One of his biographers writes, while he was hemmed up in the body, he was released in the mind. He read the Bible cover to cover. So, Bible in a year long before Father Mike Schmitz got there. He read the Bible cover to cover. He studied the sentences of Peter Lombard, which was the standard theology textbook at the time. And he read works on logic by Aristotle. But he's not just studying on his own. And this is, I really love this because he's often presented as a totally solitary figure. He begins to share what he's learned with one of his sisters. He sets up a little Bible study with her, just the two of them. I think that's such an important point. Thomas would go on to have many, many students in Paris, Rome, or Vieto, and so on. All of them, as far as I know, were men. But his first student was a young laywoman whose mind he clearly respected greatly. In any case, Thomas's family eventually recognized that he's not for turning. And so he was released back to the Dominican order. And from that point on, for the next 30 years, he lives the life of a Dominican friar. And I think it's really important to underline this as well. Sometimes we, Thomas, can be reduced to his writings or to his ideas, and we forget the life that lay behind the works. A life lived in Dominican community, a life of prayer, a life lived under obedience, and the life that involved the ultimate penance, committee work, and committee work with Dominicans. You have no idea how much suffering that involves. When the Dominican order was trying to draw up a proper curriculum for its internal studies, it called on Thomas, along with four other friars, uh, to work it all out as a committee. And one of them was actually Albert the Great. So you had two, I mean, it's the only committee I've ever thought, actually, wouldn't, be, wouldn't mind being on that committee. That would be pretty cool, just to see. In any case, they did. They came up with the curriculum and so on. And on two occasions, Thomas's fellow Dominicans asked him to establish houses and programs of study within the order, first in Rome and then in Naples. And although Thomas could at times be withdrawn and solitary, he was a fraternal character as well. So just one example of that. On the feast of St. Agnes every year, the 21st of January, he used to put on a special dinner as a treat for his students. So I think that gives us an insight into the kind of man he was. In any case, the point is that everything Thomas did from this point on, he did as a Dominican friar. Under obedience to Dominican friars, collaborating with Dominican friars, supported by Dominican friars mostly supported by Dominican friars. The first person to condemn him was also a Dominican friar, but anyway. And with many Dominican friars among his students and intended readers. So, if he was a man of the Dominican order, he was also a man of universities. And that brought him into contact with a world beyond the order. Right from the start, as I mentioned, Saint Dominic wanted his friars closely associated with universities. Other churchmen at the time were very suspicious of universities. Famous example is Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, not like universities, but Dominic and the Dominicans saw their huge value. So of the 30 years remaining in Thomas's life, he spent seven years as a student at universities, first in Paris and then in Cologne. As a student, he was taught by bachelors and masters. So bachelors, a lot of you are studying for a bachelor's degree. A bachelor initially was a squire, a knight would have his bachelor. Um, And so a bachelor was like an apprentice to the master in a university. That's Uh, what it meant Um, and he would be taught from the two main theological textbooks the Bible and the sentences of Peter Lombard a typical day for him in Paris as a a student would have involved a two hour lecture on the Bible a two hour lecture on the sentences and then in the afternoon repetitions of what had been learned orally you would go through with other students what you had learned that morning and then uh, there would be a debate or a disputatio once a week we'll come back to that in a wee bit the bachelors would have commented on biblical books in a fairly speedy and shallow kind of a way without dwelling on on difficult problems or deep mystical senses. It was just the, the literal meaning of the text. So some of you might have done the Great Adventure Bible series. You know, you can do the whole Bible in just eight weeks and you just get a, a sense of the overview of the thing. You just run through the big story. And that's kind of what the, the bachelors did in their teaching. And then the masters would go into greater depth in their commentary in class and they would usually spend one year or at least one term on each book. We don't know exactly what courses St Thomas took but we know one of his professors, St Albert the Great. I could talk about him forever and I have a talk up on the Thomistic Institute Soundcloud account that I gave to UCD or Trinity. I get them confused, I shouldn't get them confused but I do. Um, in any case, there's a, you can you can follow that up if you're interested. A few years later in his late 20s, Thomas was an assistant to Albert the Great, and he himself was a biblical bachelor teaching students in Cologne. So one of the most fascinating discoveries in recent years, in the last 15 years, I think, is somebody found samples of Thomas's handwriting in a manuscript in Cologne. So this was undiscovered until recently. We know that, um, that Albert the Great was teaching on a work called The Divine Names by, by Dionysius, and that that was translated three different times including by an Irishman, John Scotus Ereugena. So I think this is the translation by Erugina. who used to be on the, the £5 note. And what's evident here is that Thomas's, Thomas was Albert's assistant, and Albert got him to compare the different translations. And so Thomas will write in here, and it's here. It's, it's not this small writing. It's, it's here, the much fainter writing, or in between the lines. Really terrible writing. I mean, I can't emphasize how bad his, enough how bad his writing is. What he writes in just little notes comparing it with other translations so this is the kind of the donkey work that albert is getting thomas to do but also he's teaching on uh, the book of isaiah for example and we're lucky enough to have thomas's own notes from this class and they are an absolute mess so you can see in the margins these are little extra ideas he had how what he was saying in class could be developed more so he had lots of ideas for how to go more in depth in isaiah but the the main text is fairly basic and fairly straightforward because that was the job he had, just giving the the overall story. Um, It's worth noting as well that Albert was very interested in Aristotle, especially in his ethics, and he was teaching that at a time when other universities considered it off-limits, so Thomas would have been exposed to that. I'll just give you one other example here. This is um, a a selection of Thomas. This is not Thomas's handwriting, but it's from a manuscript. which contains his handwriting, And on the front of it, Thomas's secretary leaves a kind of a a catty sort of a remark. He says, we preserve this sample of Thomas's handwriting in case anyone should ever be found who's able to actually read it. Um, So there you go. That's Reginald, his long-suffering secretary. Um, What was Thomas actually like in this period? We know he was very quiet and just a very straightforward kind of guy. His fellow student friars gave him a nickname, uh, the Dumb Ox. That was the name they gave him. One of his biographers tells us that and the same biographer adds they did not know then about the theological mooing that was to come. Mugitus is the Latin for mooing in case you're interested. The theological mooing that was to come. They actually thought he was a little bit slow because he was so quiet and they offered to help him on one occasion. So one of them said, listen, I'll explain to you what Albert taught us today. and And he's trying to explain and he's really cocky and he's messing it up completely. And Thomas very gently comes back in and explains what Albert was actually saying and goes, you know, explains what it all means and so on. And they're stunned. Um, when Albert came to realize how talented Thomas was, he said to the other students, we call him the dumb ox. And note that it's not just the students who call him the dumb ox. Albert is saying, we, we call him the dumb ox, but he will produce such a mooing in his teaching that it will resound throughout the whole world. So after Cologne, Thomas is back in Paris now working the next stage of his career, a Bachelor of the Sentences, and he produces, if you like, his doctoral thesis, his commentary on the sentences, and writes a few other short works. Then he becomes a proper master. He's kind of the the top of his game. He's a master of the sacred page. If you asked him for a business card, that's what I would have said on it, master of the sacred page, meaning scriptures. And he holds then a chair of theology in Paris, the Dominican chair, twice, on two occasions for three years in his early to mid thirties, and then for four years in his late forties. And in between those, he's teaching and writing full-time in Dominican houses in Naples, Rome, and Orvieto. So then you get a sense of his, his full career. What does it mean at the time to be a master in the University of Paris? It means three things. There are three tasks that a master had. Predicare, disputare, legere. To preach, to dispute or debate, And then to read or to lecture. Preaching meant delivering sermons before the university, spiritual reflections which all the students had to attend. And Thomas's master would have done this several times a year. And a few of these university sermons survive. And they're really beautiful. But it's interesting that he's not the kind of preacher who tells stories or uses engaging images. So a lot of other preachers did this at the time. It was kind of the cool thing to do at the time. Thomas didn't do it. He's just really straightforward um, in what he says, very clear, very straightforward, nothing strange or startling. But his sermons didn't always go smoothly. So in 1259, one of his sermons in Paris was interrupted by an employee of the university, a man who was actually responsible for getting the students from the north of France to behave themselves. Clearly, he wasn't very good at his job. He was misbehaving himself. He got up in the middle of the sermon to lead a protest against the friars. And he actually had flyers to hand out pamphlets written by a die-hard opponent of the friars called William of Santa So he's handing out these flyers and shouting and, poor Thomas up there, you know, greatest theologian of the, of the time, doing his best just to preach a little sermon. So that's to preach. Disputare, then, referred to the practice of formal debate. It was a way to sharpen your teeth in your subject. If any of you are studying law, you could think of the moot court that you have, or you could think if you're studying to be a teacher, teaching practice, or even if you're you know, training in the medical area, you're often brought into hospital and you're asked, how would you assess this person? How would you diagnose them and so on? So that, that way of cutting your teeth in your subject. In a theology disputatio, there would be a question to be discussed. So for example, do the sacraments cause grace in the soul? That, that's a disputatio that Thomas actually oversaw when he was in Paris. And then there'd be two teams of students, those who would take one side, And they would present their arguments against and actually we know from the real disputatio that happened 19 objections 19 objections not just one or two 19 so really really complex Uh, and then the other team would respond to each of their objections and then the master presiding over it all would give his decision and would sum up the truth of the matter while taking into account all the good elements of the objections and often then the the proceedings of these disputed questions would be edited and published as many of Thomas's works. So if you see disputed questions on such and such, that's where these questions are are arising from. They're recorded debates. When you read these disputed questions, there's a word you will come across again and again, distingo. I distinguish. I looked it up in uh, the online corpus of Thomas's works, 6,000 times that word turns up um, in Thomas's writings. So, for example, just, this is a really stupid example, but let's say the question is, do dogs bark? And the objector says, no, dogs don't bark. Bark is what grows on the outside of trees. And then you have to distinguish. We distinguish between two kinds, two senses of the word bark. That's well, a silly example, but you get the idea. And it's a really important aspect of St. Thomas's thought. It's not original to him. It's part of the air he breathes. But he is a true master of this art of distinction. Really important. Interestingly, there were other disputed, there was another kind of disputed question, not this formal debate, but they were called quadlibital questions and they were a lot more fun. So masters had to come before the students and the students could ask them whatever they wanted. Quadlibet, that's what that means. Whatever you want, you can ask. How do you get the figs into the fig rolls? Come on, answer me that, master Thomas. And we know that these were very intimidating for masters. So they very often skipped these events. It was a problem. They very often developed a strategic sore throat and, and couldn't turn up. But scholars have looked at Thomas' own schedule and figured out that he actually attended his sessions far more regularly than his contemporary professors. And again, his replies were edited and published and recently translated. They're a really, really good read. Um, so you have some of them are cheeky. There's one that says, should a, if a man takes a vow to go on crusade, but he doesn't trust his wife to remain faithful when he's away, Is he still obliged to carry out his vow? And you can imagine the lad sniggering at this, you know, but Thomas takes it very seriously and gives a very good answer and so on. And I just came across an interesting one recently. Should we choose the best bishop always of the candidates for bishop? Should we choose the best bishop? And Thomas says, let's distinguish. What do we mean by best? If we just mean the most charitable in that absolute sense, you know, charity is the perfection of the soul. The most charitable bishop, he says, is not always the bishop we should choose. You might have someone who's very, very charitable, but doesn't have good skills in finance and management and so on. And so it might make sense to actually choose someone who's less charitable, but had these skills also. So you distinguish. This is the kind of work that he's doing all the time. So there's preaching and disputing. And then there's this last task, which is reading or lecturing. And it's so important to underline here that what Thomas is reading and commenting on in his lectures is scripture. He's a master of the sacred page. From the beginning of the end to the end of his theological career, he's commenting on scripture. It's true he writes commentaries on some of Aristotle's works near the end of his life, but as far as I know, he, he doesn't teach them. He's not teaching Aristotle in class. He's teaching the scriptures, as far as I know, but I might be corrected on that. His teaching text is the Bible, one book at a time, and he comments on them in great depth and subtlety. Um... I've written in brackets there, Father Noel, heart attack. If you want to know that story, you can ask me afterwards. But uh, it's relevant to the topic, but I don't think we have time for it. Of these in-depth commentaries on the scriptures, we have the following. Uh, A commentary on the book of Job. Some of you love his commentary on the book of Job and are reading it currently. Commentaries on the Gospel of Matthew and John. Um, Also commentary on the Psalms, which is being translated at the moment, I think, by a Dominican sister uh, in the States. Uh, commentaries on all of Paul's letters. And he also composed a collection of commentaries from the fathers of the church, the early theologians, um, on all four Gospels. So in other words, take a verse of Matthew's Gospel and he will come up with 10 different comments from the fathers that he selected the best of on this particular verse of Scripture. Huge work went into that. It's called the Catena Aurea, the golden chain. And again, he works on these to edit them and publish them. Thomas published an awful lot. Uh, About 10 million words I think is one estimate. Roughly 2,000 words every working day, which is not bad. Um, Apart from sermons, commentaries and disputed questions, he also produces, as I mentioned, commentaries in the works of Aristotle, polemical works defending the mendicants, I know uh, Professor Eitel there is is, is working on, on one of these texts, and short works written at the request of various people especially Dominican friars. So Thomas, just like we get emails saying, could you do this and could you do that? Uh, Thomas was exactly the same. He got requests from all kinds of people. So one of them um, is a request from a friar in Besançon, France, who has a lot of questions about the exact shape of the star that the Magi saw in Bethlehem. And Thomas says, he gives like one line answers to these questions. And then he says to him, listen, you need to discern what questions are important in theology and what questions are not important. Okay, yeah. So he's patient, but like kind of laying down the law, this is not important. Another reply to questions is sent to Antioch, to a man, probably a Dominican friar, the cantor of Antioch, who was at work there among Muslims. And Thomas is helping him to explain Christian beliefs to Muslims who were ridiculing him. So a very real situation, a very real concern. And Thomas is practically helping this guy. Very often in these Responses, he starts off by apologizing for the delay. I mean, that's we all reply to emails like that. So sorry for the delay, you know, of six months or whatever it might be. But he starts off saying how busy he's been. And one example, he says, You know, we had extra pairs in Lent. I just didn't have the time to get back to you during Lent. It was a really, really busy Lent. I'm sorry about that. And so you get an insight into his the busyness of his life. Now, what work of Thomas's have I not mentioned much yet? The most famous work, if any of you read Thomas. This is probably the work of Thomas that you've read. Um, what is it? The Summa Theologica or the Summa Theologiae. There are two different ways of referring to it. Um, that is the one you all know and love, I'm sure. Um, and it's the, it's the work that when I was a teenager, I found that on my dial-up internet and it changed everything for me, I must say. Um, it's a really, really important work. Not just because I found it, but <laughs> 800 years of, of theological history, but... Hopefully, against the background of what I've said so far, you'll understand it a little bit better now, if you do read it, when you do read it. Firstly, I mentioned that Thomas was given carte blanche to design to design a Dominican curriculum on two occasions. One of them was in Rome, and it's there that he began the Summa Theologiae as a textbook, it seems, for Dominican students. So this is when he was given the opportunity to design your own curriculum, and this is, seems to be the curriculum that he came up with not for very advanced students. This is important. He says this at the start. I've given you the text on the handout, but we won't necessarily read it now. It was for ordinary Dominican friars, for beginners in sacred doctrine. So that's the Dominican background, if you like, for this text. Then think about its structure. It's divided carefully into three parts, God and creation, the moral life, which is then divided into two. And then the third part, Christ and the sacraments and eschatology, the last things. And then internally, it's subdivided intricately so that each little paragraph nests within a larger article and a larger question and a larger treatise and a larger part and then the whole. So it's often been compared to a Gothic cathedral um, for uh, this attention to intricate structure. But you can see here too, the influence of Aristotle as well and his model of science, including science and theology, as a rigorous and coherent and well-structured body of thought and you can see as well thomas's gift as a teacher because the structure of the summit it can seem intimidating to us we look at the structure and we say oh, that's so intimidating but it's, ex- it's meant to be exactly the opposite it was intended to help students place each element in the larger whole to understand this or that point in its broader context so it's not just arbitrary points that thomas is making but that the thing fits together and then you can hang Uh, Hang yourself, not hang yourself, but if you can, you can hold on to, (laughs) you can hold on to these ideas and place them in their proper context rather than uh, just seeing them all as a confused jumble. And Thomas says this in the prologue, which you can read in your own time. He says other works of theology treat these same topics, but they do so in a confused way and the questions don't follow the proper order and so on. So that's, he's interested in structure and that's because he's so influenced by Aristotle and he's so passionate uh, about teaching in a clear fashion. The Bible. We've mentioned the importance of the Bible. The Summa is deeply biblical. It's dripping in quotes from Scripture, and they're often quoted from memory. He'll say, "It says in some place," right? So he's, he's just calling to mind. And it was fascinating, even when we prayed. Uh, Vespers there, and Father John Mark, you said uh, "deem" instead of whatever other word it was, and it was just the American uh, text was just coming out of your mouth, even though the 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 Irish text was there in front of you, and that happens sometimes for Thomas that there'll be a text from the liturgy. So a bit of scripture that takes a particular form in the liturgy. There might be a word or two that's changed and that's within him, it inhabits him. And so when he calls that bit of scripture to mind when he's writing the summa, he'll use that without realizing. So in other words, he's not constantly going to check up every text. He just has so much scripture in his bones and it's just uh, pouring out of him as he writes. So you can see here the effect of long years of biblical commentary and long years of absorbing scripture in the liturgy from a very young age. Um, yes. Also, you have this very broad in broad range of sources. So it's not just Christian thinkers that he's engaging with. Obviously, Aristotle, hugely important in the summer um, and other thinkers as well, like Avicenna, Averroes and Maimonides. They're just part of the conversation. He's not interested. Sometimes it, it, it's kind of curious online. One thing that that people know about Thomas and Islam, they know what he said about Muhammad and so on it's, it's like this is kind of his his main interest in, in, in the world of Islam um, and uh, it's kind of unfortunate because he's so deeply engaged with the thought of serious Muslims and so respectfully engaged and finding truth uh, in all of these thinkers it's kind of unfortunate that he's reduced to uh, something that's a little bit polemical which is again so untypical of him in any case think of the structure as well of each article in the summer so if you've read any part of the summit, you'll be familiar with this. And the mistake any beginner makes when they're reading the summit is they read these objections. So Thomas asks a question, you know, are cats black, you know? And then the objection will say, no, they're not and da da da, da. And then you, th- you are, yes, they are black or whatever, that all cats are black or something. And then you think, oh my gosh, this is what Thomas thinks. But in the objections, Thomas is raising objections to his own position, which is such a strange way of writing for us. It's such a strange way of writing. Um, and it takes a little bit of getting used to so sometimes if you're reading an article you can jump straight here to i respond and that's thomas's own position and then you can go back up and look at the objections and the replies to the objections so what does this make you think of this structure a debate a disputatio exactly but the summit wasn't the direct result of disputations it kind of echoes past Disputation. So let's say that question where there were 19 objections, that that debated question, 19 objections and so on, that'll be reduced to just the three best objections and their replies. And that'll be boiled down into a single article in the summer. So it's in that sense that he's simplifying and boiling things down for beginners. But um, Thomas clearly values this structure, this debating structure, as a way of thinking. He doesn't just give his Dominican students the right answers and say, this is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. He wants them to think the thing through for themselves. He gets them thinking about the question from various different perspectives. And these objections, the objections that he makes, they're almost never obviously wrong. When you read these objections, you're like, yep, that sounds pretty plausible. That sounds plausible too. And that's a knockdown one, you know. So how is Thomas going to deal with that? He steel mans the objectors. You know this idea of to straw man somebody is to present their arguments in the weakest possible way to steelman your opponents is to present them and to try to understand them in their strongest possible sense so that you're not just dismissing them too lightly Thomas is constantly steelmaning the objectors he presents them in a really compelling way so you can see how the summer fits into the rest of his life and work and it really is the crowning glory I think of all of his work it changed my life as I said when I started reading it as a teenager and some of you might have had similar experiences but of course it was never finished it's an unfinished work. When he was halfway through the third part on the Feast of St. Nicholas, December 6th, 1273, Thomas experienced something when he was celebrating Mass and we're told by his one of his biographers, after that Mass, he never wrote further or even dictated anything and he even got rid of his writing materials. Just got rid of them. His secretary, Reginald, the fellow who was concerned about his handwriting, he asked Thomas why he wasn't finishing the summer, I mean this is the crowning glory of your work. Why are you not finishing this? And Thomas said, I cannot do any more. And Reginald backed off and came back a little bit later and asked him again, and Thomas said, I cannot do any more. Everything I have written seems to me as straw, like straw, in comparison in comparison with what I have seen. He had written ten million words. He had walked about nine thousand miles in his journeys to teach all over Europe. He had given his whole life to teaching and explaining the truth that God had revealed. Throughout his life, he knew that his words were inadequate to the task of speaking of God. Remember what he said? It was a task that surpassed his powers. But he spoke and wrote anyway, tirelessly. And now, he had had some profound taste of the reality of God, which made him ready for the journey home and for rest in the truth. A few months later, he was on his deathbed, at the age of about 50, in the Cistercian monastery of Fassanova. After receiving communion, he said out loud, I receive you, my soul's redemption. I receive you, viaticum of my pilgrimage. For love of you, have I studied, watched, laboured. I have preached you. I have taught you. He was anointed the next day and he died three days later on Wednesday the 7th of March. What use is this man to us today though, and his thought? He mentions in the Contra Gentiles, that he intended to make known the truth that the Catholic faith professes and to set aside the errors opposed to it. And I think for every generation of Catholics since then, his work has served that purpose magnificently, especially in times of persecution. When the church was under immense pressure, it was often the thought of St. Thomas that that gave resources and that gave uh, courage to the theologians of the church at times of persecution. So one example that I found recently in the rare books room in, in, in Tala. I mean, I was just looking through the shelves and I found this, and I almost started crying when I saw this. Uh, so this is a a work, a kind of a selection of, of, um, uh, the, the best parts of St. Thomas published in Barcelona in 1647. And it made its way to Limerick for this man, um, uh, uh, James common James of St. Dominic common and owned it in 1653. If you know your history, that was a really difficult time. Two years before this in Limerick, two of his brothers had been publicly executed after the Cromwellian siege of Limerick, and their heads were placed on spikes. And here he was in Limerick, studying the thought of St. Thomas, coming up with, just still interested in in making the, the Catholic faith known and defending it against errors. I found that extraordinary. And just more recently, I found that the King of Spain was actually funding, there were Irish Dominicans in Madrid who were getting the King of Spain to fund the smuggling of books into Ireland for the Dominican friars who were under persecution at the time. And it came in via Borough Shule. If any of you have been to Westport, you know Bay, that it came in through Bay. And I, I'm, I'm convinced there was a, an elderly woman called Honoria de Burgo, who was martyred just a few years later who was involved in this because her nephew was the the lord of the area and would have had control over what came in and so on. So I think there was an elderly Dominican uh, tertiary who was involved in this on the Mayo end. And this book almost certainly came in that way. So the friars, total persecution. Everything had been wiped out. They were being killed, left, right and centre. What were they doing? Studying St. Thomas. Why? Because this was the best way to make known and to defend the Catholic faith. Extraordinary. And I don't know, as I said, in my own case, I don't know if I'd be Catholic today if I hadn't found this when I was a doubting teenager. But he does more than just help us understand and defend our Catholic faith. He also shows us that faith is not opposed to questioning. Here is a man who is passionately committed to the truth of the Catholic faith, but who doesn't stop asking questions about it. There's about 3,000 questions that he asks in the Summa Theologiae alone. He kept that questioning spirit he had as a five-year-old And it was not an impertinent questioning, but a holy, humble, confident questioning. Ever since the Enlightenment, Christian faith has been associated with being unquestioning and incurious. And sometimes we believe that lie. And I think Thomas Aquinas is the best antidote to the lie. He shows that faith actually leads to questioning, questioning which won't end until we come face to face with God. And finally, I think his habit of carefully distinguishing takes on a special importance in our own time. We're in the era of the echo chamber. The very medium of our communication encourages us to affirm views like the views we currently hold, to deny the views of our opponents, and to go on affirming and denying until we're completely incapable of actual argument. Think of St. Thomas. Not simply affirming or denying, but constantly distinguishing. Not strawmanning his opponents, but steelmanning. Spending time reading St. Thomas then It means learning from him to distinguish at every step. And it can be really frustrating. I can tell you, if you read a lot of St. Thomas, you can get really frustrated with how calm and even-handed he is and how careful he is. Sometimes when I read him, I just wish, just lose your temper, Thomas. Blast your opponents. Dismiss them. Just confidently say, this is what's true, and I know it for these reasons. But always, always he distinguishes. In this, they are correct. In this, they are. And I think in this respect, as well as modelling for us how to study and defend the Catholic faith, as well as modelling for us how to remain powerful and curious within the community of faith, he also shows us how to think and communicate with open-minded curiosity and even-handed serenity, not engaging in lazy polemics or throwing around slogans and soundbites, but reflecting and distinguishing and genuinely seeking truth. This deep thinking, it might seem ineffective, especially politically ineffective, but it's where lasting change comes from all the polemicists and sloganeers of Thomas's time are long forgotten. Their words are gone the way of fish, flesh, and fowl. But nearly 800 years after his birth, Thomas's careful words are still being carefully read, and his works remain monuments of unaging intellect. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks,